Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. I'm Mike Bowden, the still head of Intermodal Solutions, and I'm joined as always by Joanna Marsh, who does editorial writing at FreightWaves. And uh, today we're going to be speaking with Chris Jocelyn, president of RunRail, if we can get uh, Chris's uh, technical difficulties worked out. Uh, but first, uh, Joanna, you wrote an article on uh, Jim Venna. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> Yeah, so um, it was an interesting time. I guess it was last week. It, it feels a lot, so long ago. But um, Union Pacific uh, releases second quarter earnings. But right before it releases second quarter earnings, um, it had also announced that Jim Venna um, would be uh, uh, would be the next um, CEO of Union Pacific, um, replacing um, Lance Fritz, who uh, will be there until August thirteenth. Um, yeah, and then Jim Veno, he was uh, the chief operating officer um, at Union Pacific uh, in 2019 and 2020. And before then, um, he spent a lot of time at Canadian um, Railway CN. Um, I was there with Hunter Harrison. And I think he was there. I, he's uh, his, his career has spanned of 40 plus years. I'm not sure if all of it was at CN, but I think a significant chunk of it was. So, um, yeah. So that's that's uh, that, that's uh, that's the big news happening in the well, one of the big pieces of news happening in the freight rail industry space here. Yeah, and so sort of the question is, I mean, does this um, sort of signal where the company is is going? I think that's kind of what people are, are you know reading into it. Um, I mean, certainly he is a favorite among uh, Wall Street. Um, they have a stock chart that um, I think is kind of interesting. If we can bring that up, um, but you know, it stocks uh, stocks surged. Um, you know, both uh, here recently with his announcement, and I don't know how much of that was due to the the, sec- the um, second quarter earnings, but it also um, you know went up back in uh, January of, of 2019. I remember um, you know, that day the share that went back and looked at that shares were up 8.9 percent the day that Jim Venna was announced to join Union Pacific as the COO, and uh, and I think the reason for that is uh, like you said, I mean his time at Canadian national, you know, with Hunter Harrison sort of maybe, um, you know, put, put that in the category of being Hunter Harrison disciple. Uh, there's a picture of a uh, picture of Jim. And, uh, you know, if, if you bring up this, this, the stock chart, you can you know see some of the, the some of the stock price movements you see there on the left. Um, so the, the black line is a Union Pacific share price and the blue line, which is on the other axis is the S&P 500. You know, sometimes it, it sort of trends right in line with it. Uh, but but other times um, you see it doing better or worse than the S and P. One of those times it was doing better was was you know on the left hand side that that red oval was uh, right about when uh, Jim Vanna was announced um, that he would uh, be joining Union Pacific as COO back in uh, January 2019. And then you see on the right hand side you see that that latest surge that black line uh, climbing um, you know pretty significantly from about two hundred dollars a share earlier this year to now two thirty one fifty one. So um, head in the right direction, but, um, it, it is interesting. You, you, um, I think interviewed Tony Hatch to see his reaction. He always has an interesting take. What, what did Tony, uh, think about it? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, you know, Tony kind of encapsulated what I, I think a, a number of people were thinking if, if not chippers, um, <laughs> um, which is that I think the, um, the announcement was surprising for, on several levels. Um, on one hand, of course, it, it wasn't surprising in the sense that um, Union Pacific has been seeking to, you know, improve its service, and 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 uh, Jim Vena, um, you know, operations 
and service was was sort of his his thing uh, when he was CEO COO of Union Pacific. Um, what else did Tony say? The but the the interesting thing I think it caught people off guard for some several reasons. Why was it because um, you know Jim's name was mentioned actually in February um, when a hedge fund had um, had uh, pressed UP to uh, you know to change its leadership. Um, and so, you know, like one of those are why, you know, why wait this long, um, you know, to appoint him as, as CEO. And um, I think kind of, as you mentioned, kind of sort of begs a larger question, like, you know, what does it mean for Union Pacific? Is it going to be more, uh, is it going to kind of go back to, um, you know, sort of the, you know, it, how, you know, UP was run uh, when, um, when Jim was there um, or will it, uh, will it uh, change in any way, um, especially since, you know, things have changed so much um, in the last three years with um, uh, a lot of um, uh, labor uh, issues coming up in terms of, um, you know, ensuring that, you know, whether there's enough headcount uh, to, to power the trains, you know, and stuff like that. Um, so I think, you know, Tony Hatch, what is he saying? So he was saying, you know, lots of the CEO appointments um, have been kind of more, uh, marketing people like you know Alan Shaw at Norfolk Southern and um, Tracy Robinson um, uh, at CN and um, Joe Hendrichs at um, at CSX. You know, uh, well Tracy Robinson and Joe Hendrichs were were outsiders of the industry. Um, both kind of had that marketing background. Of course, Alan Shaw was at, has been at NS for a long time, but but still that that idea of looking at. Um, uh, you know, sort of industry growth through that lens. So it was kind of an interesting choice um, in a way to uh, for UP to select um, uh, Jim Venna as they did. But Edna, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting um, interesting choice. I do think that, um, you know, a very experienced operator that would typically, like if, like if this happened, you know, four years ago, it would surprise absolutely no one, right? It would. Be, it seems like that was the obvious choice. I mean, it seemed like that's what people expected when they named him COO at Union Pacific in in, in 2019. And so it, it always seemed like back in that era and before that the right person to lead a Class One railroad, um, you know, is someone who is really an operator. And I think that sort of stemmed from the fact that Hunter Harrison came from operations, and then Keith Creel, very much kind of a, a miniature younger Hunter Harrison, um, you know, learn, learn from, from him. And so, uh, that was sort of the, 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 the perspective. I mean, I think lately with, um, you know, the, the, all the things that happened in the pandemic, which a lot of these were, you know, difficult to, um, to, to foresee like all the labor issues. I don't think anyone expected labor issues to be as severe as, as they had been. And then the service issues, uh, you know, those are much more severe than, than, than people had been. And of course, Lance Fritz came under a tremendous amount of uh, pressure um, from in front of the STB for all the service disruption. I mean, that, that was really where a lot of the service um, you know, issues were. Were on the on the UP, uh, so it, it is going to be interesting. I mean, does that um, you know you know mean that Union Pacific is going to be more of a PSR railroad than than the others? I, I think uh, you know time uh, will tell. So with with that as um, sort of one topic uh, down, go read the article. I want to bring on today's uh, guest. It's going to be Chris Jocelyn. He's the president of Run Rail. Uh, intermodal company, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Yeah, great, great to have you. Um, you know, wanted to uh, you know have you on to talk a little bit about uh, intermodal. Um, yeah, for those that are not 
familiar with RunRail. Can you give us a quick um, overview? Yeah, uh, the RunRail division started, the genesis of it at least started about a year ago in probably partly because of Schneider moving away from the BNSF to the UP. I think, uh, you know, anytime a vacuum is created, people try to fill that vacuum. And that's one of the things the ownership group decided to do. Uh, at our core, we're a 53-foot domestic container provider in, in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. And we're just getting our feet wet. But uh, we see, you know, the, the ownership has a long-term vision. They want to get to you know, thousands of containers in the next five or six years. Now we could have started at a better time probably, right? So, <laughs> because a lot of people have stuff stacked, but that's, uh, that's part of the, the industry and the volatility that we've seen over the last couple of years. But we really have a, really have a need to get out, not just with the IMC world and provide containers for them, but to really adopt a philosophy of collaboration with the three PLs and brokers out there. And those that have had maybe just a, a toe in the water in far, as far as intermodal is concerned, but they need the expertise, not just as a piece of equipment, but actually a team of people that have the experience we do. So that's the direction we're going five months in for me. And it's been quite the ride so far. Yeah. And, um, you know, you have a team that really has a lot of, um, experience in the intermodal, uh, you know, industry. I mean, we give us people a, a sort of rundown of that. I thought that was impressive. Yeah. We've, uh, we've brought on a couple of people that have serious experience with the railroads themselves. Uh, Mr. Mark Shepard from KCS is our most recent hire. Uh, they, they, of course, if the KCS and the CP going through that particular merger, uh, created some opportunities for some people that wanted to explore a more entrepreneurial direction to do so. And we were lucky enough to get uh, Mark over with the team. We've got, we've got a team of about five people on the marketing and operational side that have, I think the, the least amount of tenure in the industry is about 25 years. So, and you can tell by the gray in my beard that I have about that much in myself. So, you know, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a great thing to have young people entering our business sphere that really look at analytics, look at the, the numbers and can drive efficiencies in that manner. But you need to layer that with people that have the kind of experience that our team is being put together with. Yeah. So that's interesting. You said that, um, you know, some of this got started because Schneider moved its business from BN to UP. You've seen that from other companies too. They don't want to be a second class citizen because they're so closely with um, GP Hunt. And so, so that left excess capacity on the UP. And so you were able to go in and, and be that provider. I left less excess capacity and beyond, I'm sorry. And so that leaves excess um, availability for, for you to, to be the, the retailer of that. Am I getting that right? Well, that's certainly the idea. I think in our market today, excess capacity is, is not really, uh, it, it's something that's everywhere, right there. You know, all the, all the equipment providers have stacked containers all over the country. And, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting being as long as I have in this business is you think you see things cycle over time, you know, it's coming. You can, our economy and the infrastructure around the intermodal industry is too strong not to come out of things in, I think, fairly short order. Still, we we've got, you know, rough roads ahead as I think anyone would dictate it, you know, as far as the BNSF and having Schneider move off the BNSF and providing that, that void, if you will. You know, JB can obviously fill that void, 
they're a monster. They, they're still growing. They've added a lot of containers to their fleet and they, uh, they are by far and away the largest intermodal container provider, especially on the, the BNSF. They could have absorbed anything that, um, that Schneider left behind. At least I believe over time they could. But having said that, I'm sure the BNSF, and they haven't told me this, but I'm sure the BNSF doesn't want to be, as they say, a one-trick pony. So having other suppliers like ourselves is, is real important. Having said that, though, we don't want to be just a commodity, right? We don't want to just be another container that the IMCs will look toward as a a part of the myriad of different containers that all just have different stenciling, different paint, right? So the whole idea is to differentiate ourselves from that competition by actually integrating ourselves with the transportation intermediaries that we deal with and really helping them solve problems. And I think that's everybody that's on the team now has had that type of experience over their careers. They've gone in and all these transportation uh, intermediaries have challenges. We all do, right? From the IMC world. And having people come in and want to collaborate, not just want to hand off a container, but want to collaborate, understand what their challenges are and help provide solutions is the real goal. So is, is your clientele primarily the transportation intermediary, so 3PLs, brokers, or is it uh, the, the, the shippers themselves? And are, are you targeting a certain niche in, in that community? N- not uh, not any of the shippers. That that we leave up to the brokers, the the IMCs, et cetera. We are, we do not call them BCOs. I mean, you know, certainly if, if one of our clients wants us to present a deeper dive into what we have available for their client, then we certainly will collaborate with them on that. But we are definitely focused on the transportation intermediaries. Now we have, our core has centered around the BNSF solution. We've just recently completed a, an agreement with the CSX. So we'll be expanding that geography. We have, uh, in place some agreements with the CPKC and, uh, we actually have a footprint in Mexico that we're developing. And I, I think right now with the business, the way it is, everybody's looking for, you know, turning over every rock to try to create revenue and margin. And we're, we're the same, of course. Now we only have 650 boxes at the moment, but we are in the process of adding another couple hundred to that immediately. So we're real serious about the next four, five, six years of expansion. Now, now we just have to make sure the industry uh, complies, right? And gets back to some kind of normalcy, even if it is normalcy of 2019 versus 2022, right? Um, when you're talking about expansion, is that is it in terms of like expanding capacity or, or expanding um, boxes? Or can you maybe explain a little bit more what you mean by your, your plans for the next and uh, upcoming years? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm talking about the, the, the equipment capacity. Uh, you know, it's 53-foot domestic equipment containers. And, uh, you know, again, that is something that is, there are minor differences between one container manufacturer and another, but a box is a box is a box when you're from in the IMC world looking to move capacity from one geography to another and balance your network. And we, we of course, want to do the same thing, but we don't want to just be on the BNSF uh, footprint. You know, right now, as, as we begin this process, as we grow, we certainly are focused in on that. The key corridors in the United States that, that are, you know, heavy shipping lanes, we, we apply to the LA to Chicago, Texas, Memphis, and back, and all that kind of thing. 
but we want to expand in two ways. We want to expand our overall capacity and we have, uh, I don't know the exact number yet, but we are in negotiation with uh, the purchase of another additional two, 300 boxes to try to get closer to that thousand mark and before the end of the year. And then we have plans to grow way beyond that into several thousand over the next five, six years. But on top of that, to, to your question, we want to expand our geography as well. We have a lot of IMCs that, that are looking to move cross country and, you know, having that CSX relationship will allow us to, to move the, that freight in a more efficient manner. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, how are you finding rail service, uh, right now? Well, rail service is actually pretty good. Uh, the BNSF is, is I, I've done some comparisons in certain lanes and I, I won't divulge those because I, I don't want to detract from anybody's service that's out there. Certainly our service is way better than it was when I say our service, I mean, the railroads it is way better overall than it was, you know, a year plus ago. Um, but one of the in interesting issues that people don't think about when, when the, the service improves, when you're making your schedules or even coming in before the scheduled uh, rail times, what you're doing is you're creating even a, a larger capacity problem. Because if your trains are running a little bit slower or right on schedule instead of faster, then, then you can start unstacking equipment and using more of it. So it's an interesting balance that occurs. And I, I think that the railroads in general have always looked at the capacity of their partnerships or and with the UP with their own equipment, which kind of has been one of the major drags in the year to year comparisons. If you look at the data out there through Q2, at least that the the rail own containers are really kind of pulling the overall numbers even further down than maybe they would have normally. But overall, capacity is capacity. And if it's sitting off to the side and you're, you're playing economics with the supply and demand curve, you have to be patient. And we certainly are that. Yeah, that's good. So it does seem like, um, you know, I mean, a lot of brokers are primarily focused on the highway would like to do more intermodal. You do have to get the container from somewhere. It does give you an option when you have a niche player that can provide not just the container, but can, you know, connect the dots, you know, just understands all of the, um, you know, sort of issues that go along with intermodal, the more points of handling, things that can go wrong, all of those things. So you definitely can see how, um, you know, this, this fills a, a, a niche. You know, you hit that right on the head. Uh, you, you know, these, these brokers and these, three PLs, many of them focus on that, that road move simply because their careers have, have revolved around that simple cent per mile kind of introduction to a customer. It's very, very quick, very transactional. You can hit the spot market real well. Intermodal, you've, it requires a little bit of, um, more attention to the detail, you know, the drayage side of things, not only the container selection, the, the lane selection, the sked rail schedules, there's a lot more involved, but the, but frankly, you know, the, our, our country is going in a direction that you can see the need for further rail expansion. The BNSF is certainly putting a huge amount of money into like the Barstow facility that's going in and some of the double and triple, triple tracking things that they've got going on. And, uh, and all the, all the railroads are kind of in, kind of in the mode of a redesign. And I think that eventually will come out to a lot better efficiency, a lot more freight being pulled from the long haul road components into this kind of venue. Yeah. Um, you know, a year or so ago, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, that the, the chassis availability was a huge issue. 
and drainage availability was a huge issue and the congestion and, and, and the inland terminals was a big issue. Are, have those all been alleviated? And do you see any of those as, as sort of being drags going forward? Yeah, uh, you know, certainly the the chassis issues, you know, a lot of this stuff has to do with, you know, the types of chassis you're involved with. One of the biggest chassis issues I ran into a couple of years ago was really more on the ISO box side of things, the 40 and 20 footer side of things. Uh, but when, when things get out of, you know, our, our network is robust, certainly in the United States, it's better than anywhere else in the world you could look to. But it also, in my opinion, needs to be more nimble. Needs to be more resilient. Always has. You, you know, when you, you know, it's one thing to have a worldwide pandemic. That's you know cataclysmic to almost any kind of infrastructure and, and delicate balance that goes on within any industry. But when you see, you know, a labor strike or you know, or some kind of disruption in transportation flow internationally, the ripple effect into our domestic infrastructure is is pretty incredible to watch. And, you know, I, I don't have the magic bullet to cure all that. I don't think anybody does, but I, I do think that, that large data sets looking at analytics real closely, trying to forecast better based on a lot of these variable components is going to help the industry overall. It, you know, it, it's, it's got to get more resilient somehow or another. Speaking of forecasting, any reason to think there's going to be any meaningful intermodal peak season this fall, or is it going to be another muted? season like last year yeah well my history is uh originally with the hub group in the imc world and then my own 3pl so when i when i hear the word peak i, I used to get real excited about the idea of just i was going to say tearing my hair out but i as you can see i did that many years ago so uh, the 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 peak this year i think will be speed bump you know there are, the one thing i will say is that i love to look at data about consumer confidence, about political cycles, things like that. Because I think there's a momentum factor in, in our economy. Our economy revolves, I mean, we're a country of consumers, right? And even when, even when some of those things we're consuming become incredibly more expensive, we, we both adapt to that and we alter the types of things we purchase, but we continue to purchase. And consumer confidence is actually ticking up a little bit. And it, when that happens, especially as you start to move into the, the you know, Q3, Q4, you're going to see a lot of purchasing. I, I think I read an article the other day about the prime day that occurred in July. I can't remember which day that was, but that it was actually better than anticipated and kind of is a, you know, hopefully a harbinger of, of good things to come. So there, there are, you can go and look at people parsing the numbers and come up with a lot of horrible things to spin it on it's great to spin it on i'm kind of a cup half full guy at least i'd like to think i am and the, you know in in our industry especially when you have a lot of capacity stacked at the moment and trying to move it around you better be a cup half full guy and it will change it will it will continue to get better but peak to your question i think a speed bump it's <laughs> a good way to put it speed bump <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I said something a second ago about creating ripples in the industry when some of these disruptions happen. I, I think some of them are more like tsunami these days, right? This, this, uh, yellow issue that has, has, uh, really, I, I don't know if, I think people were holding out hope that they could survive again, 
but that's, that's a lot of jobs, a lot of transportation related and driver jobs, union high paying jobs that have just instantly evaporated. And I know that's a different segment that we're talking about today, but there are more than just ripples that occur with situations like that. And, you know, our, our industry is robust enough of, enough to adjust to all these things, but we have to go through a lot of pain first. And that's unfortunate. That was like probably my first conversation with the ownership group. When I came to run rail five months ago, I said, are you prepared for a, a little bit of pain? Not a little bit, a lot of pain for this year. And, you know, the, the reason I joined the team is truly because they had a vision that was five and 10 years out, not one year at a time. And that's something I love because a lot of us get caught up in that quarterly cycle. You know, what's announced on Wall Street, what's going on next to it. Yeah, those are important things, but having a long view is, I think, even more important to our country. Yeah, I think that's completely right. Uh, appreciate all the all the insights. Um, we are about out of time. How, how do people uh, reach out to you and get in touch with uh, RoadRail? Yeah, RunRail is, you can go to- RunRail. Uh, yeah, RunRail, that's okay. Uh, you can go to uh, run-rail.com and you can contact us through the site. You can also get me on LinkedIn. My name's Chris Joslin and uh, I, you can find me fairly active on there. You can go to the website from there. You can- uh, reach out through, you know, all those types of platforms to us. And we're ready and willing to not just provide a container, but to provide what we believe is an expertise in the industry that can help you as a company become even better in a very volatile industry. Sounds good. Great. Thanks very much uh, for being on. Thank Hope you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.